Hey friends, you're listening to Changing the Conversation, a podcast by African Leadership and the Mocha Club, where we take time to sit down and explore topics to challenge our perspective in pursuit of better loving people and the world around us. All right. Happy Tuesday, friends. It's Fallon here on the Changing the Conversation podcast. And on today's episode, Emily and I take it all the way back to the beginning. Today, we're bringing you a conversation with Barrett Ward, the founder of Mocha Club, the Mocha Club, y'all. Yes, the Mocha Club that you are listening to right now on this podcast. All right, you get it. But we are so excited to share a conversation with Barrett. He is a visionary and a go-getter, and I wouldn't be here today, actually, if it wasn't for his passion for encouraging folks to come together um, with the Mocha Club. He has a desire to make a change and actually do it in a very tangible way. So with him, we discuss his particular passion for Africa and its people and where that's brought him today. Barrett's also the founder of ABLE, a social impact business that sells beautiful products made by women who have overcome. So thanks for tuning in. Here's our conversation with Barrett Ward. Tell me a little bit about Barrett Ward, because Barrett Ward did not start out in this nonprofit space changing the world. No. So go back to your younger years. Mm-hmm. Younger years could be like my 30s <laughs> at this point. Well, I'm married right now, and I have four daughters, and I work with a company called Able. Mm-hmm. If I go back to the beginning, I grew up in Indiana. Midwest, woohoo! Yeah, Midwestern, just like mm-hmm. everybody on the news sounds like they're from the Midwest. Uh, and I grew up in Carmel, Indiana, which is, is known, I wasn't a rich kid, but it's known as being a pretty rich kid area, mm-hmm. and it's where all the football players live, mm-hmm. and, and it was not diverse. I remember it was extraordinarily not diverse mm-hmm. in a class of, I think, over 600 people. There was maybe two African-Americans in our entire class. Wow. So huh. that was that was a weird part of growing up in that space. But, yeah, I grew up at Carmel, Indiana. went to Indiana University because I saw Keith Smart hit a baseline jumper in 1987 to win the national <laughs> championship. And you're like, that's my school. That's my school. <laughs> it's got to go. I had a friend recently tell me that his son was going to Belmont University because he met a girl that's going there. And I was like, that sounds like a really dumb reason. He goes, why did you choose to go to Indiana? I was like, touche. Yep. Sure, okay, sure. That's right. Yep. I didn't make a really bold decision. <laughs> I think that's the that's often the um, the funniest ways of getting into an, a university, but it's often like it creates a really cool story. Yeah. I you mean, had a great time And in that Indiana. may be all I got out of Indiana University <laughs> is that story. Did you play sports there? Uh, like, <laughs> are you talking, is there somebody else here you're talking to right now? I don't know. The listeners don't know. Yeah, well. We could be an NBA star and we would never They know. now know. I did not play <laughs> sports outside of intramural. I won second place in intramural billiards. Oh, Please love tell it. me you have like a a big trophy from that. No. Anything. Oh, uh-uh. Just right here. Wall. Yeah. In, in your heart. heart. Yeah, I know it. I know it to be true. Okay. Were you artistic in school? Uh no, you keep asking questions <laughs> that make me sound like a total. Uh, How did you a pud. spend your time yeah. outside of studying? Well, I didn't even really <laughs> do that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, great. I sold books door to door while I was in college. Mm. College was more of an occupational thing for me. I mean, sure. I, I sold books with a company called the Southwestern Company. You know, people that have done that in Nashville, right? Mm-hmm. And. It was the hardest thing I could have ever imagined. You know, I mean, it was brutal, but I was a soft kid. I was a marshmallow kid, so it definitely grew me up. Going out to knock on people's doors and them telling you, get the heck off of my porch. Mm-hmm. Sure. Hurt my feelings. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I couldn't handle that. But you know, that first summer I made about $10,000 and away we go. It, it, it put me on a trajectory of trying to be in sales for a few years. And and you were good at it. I was good at it, which I thought m- that meant I was supposed to do it. I actually, mm-hmm. you know, stayed in sales through my 20s and did financially well at it, mm-hmm. but then eventually realized, I hate this. Mm-hmm. And it only took me till I was like 30 years old to figure that out. Because I just didn't think you, I didn't think that was the consideration. Growing up in Carmel, I thought the consideration right. was, or at least, you know, my viewpoint, I'm not saying that's everybody's viewpoint, Carmel, obviously, but my viewpoint was if you're making a lot of money, that means you're enjoying what you do and you're successful at it. Right. So I stuck with it till I was about 30. And then I went on a trip to Peru uh, with some friends from church. Mm-hmm. I guess it was a mission trip. They call them that, yes. They call them that. <laughs> I went on a mission trip, and uh, I solved poverty, you know, for the first time, up close and personal. I'd never really mm-hmm. seen it before, mm-hmm. other than pictures that obviously didn't move me or right. I didn't care. And But meeting a little girl coming out of a little tin shack, you know, a prefabricada casa mm-hmm. that costs like, you know, I could have bought... 300 of those with the car that I had just bought um, that I was sure was the pinnacle of success. And then all of a sudden at my pinnacle, right. I was looking at this. So, so yeah, I ended up uh, coming back and leaving my job. And, and you were in Nashville traveling. at that point? Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess that would have been about 2001. Started traveling, went to, you know, Ireland. I, I wanted to see what that kind of ministry would look like to work with children like that. And mm-hmm. then um, And then on the way back, my friend Mark Wiggins said, man, you ought to try to go to Africa. He would say it like that. Yeah. yeah. He's Southern Georgia. So um, so I did. Took his advice. I went to Africa. I went to, flew into Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking, really? how are they going to fly this plane on a dirt strip? You know, totally ignorant. Mm-hmm. Had no idea what Africa was. But and then all of a sudden, Addis Ababa is this huge, beautiful city, you know? Right. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that was the trajectory that led me to leaving the, that career and getting into ministry with African leadership. I mean, that's a really radical shift. A little girl coming out of uh, her little tin shack right. in Peru. I mean, that's like life altering for you at that point. It was, yeah. Hmm. I mean, it didn't feel radical to me. It looks radical to other people, I guess. But whatever happens in your life that takes you to the next step, just feels like it is what it is. Probably the most radical thing was going from a really good salary to making $36,000 a year <laughs> right? that I had to raise. That you were raising, uh-huh. right. That was why, the worst. What, why the jump to ministry as opposed to like uh, State Department or politics or something where you could be involved in caring about the greater world but not be in ministry? Well, just your the faith component of your story. I think faith component and also going into government work requires an education, uh, which I didn't really. We have already established. Yeah, yeah we established right. that wasn't no my thing. I didn't studying. go to Georgetown. <laughs> Where did you go to college? I went to Hope College in Holland, oh, Michigan. Yeah, of have course, you heard of it? Of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I lived in, in up in, in East Lansing for a while. You so. did? I didn't know. I that. I recruited other people to sell books during our was in East Lansing. <laughs> I love it. So. Um, yeah, no, it was just the faith component, okay. wanting to 
exercise my faith. And also African leadership kind of gave me the room to figure it out. I didn't know what I, exactly I wanted to do, but they gave me the space to kind of say, well, go play, figure out what you want to do. At that point in the African leadership story, it was a relatively new organization. And it was in a town that didn't have the massive amount of nonprofits that we did now, or we do now. Were you looking at ministry in all over the world in different places, and you just landed on African leadership after your trip to Addis? I, I got connected to African leadership because the founder was a bookman, meaning a mm. man who sold books door to door when he <laughs> was in college as well. Yes, okay. Um, as they are properly called. In instant synergy. So yeah, he brought me in and said, go fundraise. <laughs> and I tried to do that. It didn't go so well at first. Okay. Hmm. I did a, I mean, that's how, that's why I started Mocha Club because when we held a banquet and I'd spent three months trying to develop a banquet and I invited people to tables and they invited people and we had like 450 people there. It was incredible. And we raised $38,000 and I was like, man, I just raised $38,000 in three months of work. That was not efficient. Hmm. So I just thought there had to be a better business model for raising funds. So, huh. And you are at an organization that allows you to kind of explore and try your own new thing. Yeah. So your bright idea. Well, there was a guy named Mark Button. Have you ever met Mark? He's yeah. the guy that created the Koosh Ball, and he was helping consult with African leadership for a period of time. And he's obviously a creative genius. He created the Koosh Ball. Right. You know, if you don't know what that is, Google it. It's like the hula hoop almost. Do you, do you think they still sell them? Like, do they your do. girls know about Koosh Balls? They do not know about Koosh Balls. <gasps> he also created the Vortex football, the one with the fins on the back. Oh, sure. Oh. So he's like, he, he, he was really encouraging that entrepreneurial spirit in me to just yeah. figure it out. So I took some buddies to, to Africa. I think we went to Kenya um, and South Africa. Mm-hmm. I took and Alan Perry as a Nashville guy. Jeremy Cowart. No, that was a, another trip. I first took... Alan Perry and a group of friends. Hmm. See? Really? Yeah, here's some education for you. I don't what even know who this? you are anymore. <laughs> like um, three? 2003? Oh I don't Four? do years. I, don't, I can't even. Somewhere between 2003 and 2005, probably. So in two, it might have been 2003. So I took Alan and a group of friends, a guy named Todd Prevost, is a Nashville guy, mm-hmm. um, Mike Duffy, some people I'd sold books with, and we all went to. South Africa and Kenya, and that's where the idea started to come to bear. I, I, I had this idea. For some reason, coffee was just becoming really big at that point, mm-hmm. and Starbucks was becoming really big. And it was kind of where it's not now. It was a big joke back then in a way. It kind of was, I mean, can you believe we're spending $5 on a mocha? Right. You know, that was the joke. Sure. So that joke played into sitting down with this group of people who all wanted to have an impact but didn't know how to have an impact. And after you look at the massiveness of the problem or what, what the challenges might be that face Africa, mm-hmm. because there, there are and there were many a challenge that, mm-hmm. that d- they do face. Sure. And we started looking at, well, how do we communicate a message that that's just not true? Back in those days, when, we, when I traveled to Zimbabwe on my very first trip, we f- found with Agrippa Dube, um, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. He said that for to put one child in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, into school for a term 
Actually, you could put two children in school for a term for $7. So we said, okay, what if we just said for the cost of two mochas? And the truth is, is what we did is is we created these uh, eight and a half by 11 sheets of paper that we mailed to people and we had them fax back their credit card information. Uh Uh-uh. No way. Fax back. Yeah. So I had people faxing back their credit card information and I told each of the people that went on that trip with me, give this to 10 people, have them fax back their credit card information, let's start raising money. It was ridiculous. I had no idea what, you know. The internet wasn't really chugging at the level that I knew how to engage in. Uh And then all of a sudden, MySpace came out. And and when MySpace came out, that was, oh, maybe we could do this online and create a community around it. And that's Mm -hmm. when I took Cowart and Barnes Mm -hmm. and Alex Bay and Matt Wirtz. We took all those guys to, I think, Kenya and South Africa as well. Mm -hmm. And... It was there that the idea started to proliferate more and started thinking about, and that's where Cowart started his photography career, really. Right. And we just started talking about how could we do this? How could we get the message out there? And when we got back, we were at a party at my house, and Wirtz just said, hey, what if I started taking it on the road? Hmm. I was like, that'd be great, bro. And road, you know, Matt Wirtz is a musician. And so I went out on the road with him and we traveled together and ran out of gas in Iowa one day. And, and uh, the rest is history. At that point, was Mocha Club the name of this idea or were you sharing about African leadership? At the that Mocha point? Club was the idea. Okay. Yeah, we had so Coward designed a bunch of stuff for us and created it. a little website with Pixel Grazer, his company. And the idea at that point, which worked and made sense in 2005, I guess, was what if you could get people online just to send an invite, just like they would on MySpace at that time, to the group of friends. And when they got that invite, if they could click a link, that would draw them back to join the team. Mm -hmm. And that team together could see their impact. And as they... Started giving more and more and more. We would tell them stories and show them on the website, even like their, you know, little thermometer. Right. And and I think people got excited about it. It was the right time for something like that. I mean, now it's actually called something. It's called micro donations now. Right. Yeah. You know, but, but when it was then, it was the first thing that had ever been done. In fact, I had a friend at um, World Vision that said, yeah, we already tried that at World Vision. It didn't work. Hmm. And I remember thinking... Arrogantly or stupidly, you know, well, even though they're a billion-dollar organization, I don't think they did it right, you yeah. know. And sure enough, they didn't. Mm-hmm. I always tell young entrepreneurs, listen, listen to people, be wise, get good counsel, but also believe in – you have to right. You have to believe in yourself. You sure. Know? From this end, it worked. I joined 2007. Hmm. So, yeah. That How did was- you hear about it? Matt Wirtz and Dave Barnes concert. <laughs> Together they were at a concert. Calvin College. Yeah, it's um, funny how many yeah. people that I find out were in Mocha Club. I just met, yeah. um, I was spending time the other last week with one of the consultants of Able, our e commerce consultant. We've been working together for six months, and Able or Mocha Club came up. He goes, Oh, yeah, I was a member for a few years. He goes, yeah. I may still be. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> What's his name? I probably know it. Eric Stiller. (laughs) It's the beauty of Mocha Club. It is. It's just a remarkable story, and it's had such lasting impact. Obviously, it continues to have impact across Africa. But 
you didn't stop your story there. You didn't create Mocha, send Matt and Dave out on the wor- the road, and ADD. then just like sit back, right? Yeah. Well, I'd I'd, I'd like to sit back more. <laughs> I like sitting back. Well, yeah, you're doing that now, but you were in your younger years, in your thirties. My ambitious thirties. Yeah, you moved on. You had more to do. What was so powerful for you in watching this thing grow? Did that transform anything in the way that you saw yourself and in in your ability to create and be an entrepreneur? You know, not really. I've never felt, not not even recently, till recently with Abel and the kind of growth that we've had in success, do I even start remotely feeling a confidence, you know, Hmm. about the ability to maybe start something and and drive growth. It just hmm. it it always feels scary and sure. and crazy to me. And the and the other side of it is it doesn't change anything because I never did these things out of this great vision. I started Mocha Club because I took a group of friends to Kenya and uh South Africa that said we don't know how to have an impact. Hmm. And that sparked something. Or when I was with Abel and or when I started Abel, it was not because there was this grand vision of employing, you know, and changing in a fashion industry and right. poverty around the world. It was about these women that are coming out of prostitution that are telling me, if I don't have a dang job after this, I'm going back to prostitution. Right. And right. that that's it. That's startling. And so you just want to do something about it. I'm kind of hoping that that never happens to me again at this point. <laughs> You'd like to sit back a little bit more. Uh, yeah. I mean, with four daughters that are young, I'll... I'll I'd like to focus on that for a while, but and it really is getting to a nice place where Abel is growing so significantly that we have such an incredible team. You know, we've grown in the last four years from five employees to eighty six now, and eighty three of them are women, and we're about to hire three more. That's so, awesome. So um, it's an extraordinary organization, and and it's it's a well led team now. Mm, you know, it's yeah. not just a few of us trying to scratch together a couple dimes. <laughs> So before it was a well-harnessed machine, Oh gosh! it was, again, your brain, you and Rachel living in Ethiopia, working, you still on behalf of Mocha Club, really, yep. and, um, and Rachel's job, obviously, in Ethiopia, but you were really tied to one of our strongest project partners there, Women mm. at Risk, and hearing these women say exactly what you just said, that if I don't have something after this then the only life for me is prostitution. Yeah, it was actually, so, I mean, yeah, Abel was completely birthed out of uh, out of Mocha Club. When it was actually that when we were living there and seeing the extraordinary poverty and seeing, you know, girls have to sell their bodies, you know, mm-hmm. it's just ridiculous. Um, and the choices that they had to make, I just got mad about that again it's just right in front of you so i actually started seeking out partners for mocha club to work with in that Mm -hmm. space and the one that we found that i was most excited about was actually women at risk Mm -hmm. so i went over and interviewed that team over there and said hey can you use some money and and that's one question you never get a lot of no's to (laughs) right and so we started funding cherry and her work and that team over there yeah, and and, and, and she told me, and the women told me, that they they were trying to do things like make greeting cards, that very typical African mm-hmm. beads thing. But I just don't get excited about something unless I feel like it's sustainable, that it has an opportunity to scale and grow. Sure. And and I don't think that 
it's not worth starting something if it's not going to scale and grow. That's not the message. I think it's all about actually the individual. And the way that I'm wired is that if it doesn't have a sense that it can scale and grow to me, then I don't, I'm not going to fight for it. It, doesn't, it, gets, it just doesn't get me fired up. So, mm. so the beads and the cards and stuff like that was just not a story that was going to be told very well. And it certainly, you know, it obviously had a shelf life. But scarves and fashion is something that didn't. So after seeing those products, you know, I, I eventually was at the market one day with Rachel and she was buying a bunch of scarves to bring home. And I asked her if they were cute. I couldn't, I don't know if something's cute or not. And she said, <laughs> I said, are you just buying them, you know, because they're from Ethiopia or are they actually cool? And she's like, no, these are really cool. And that's where the light bulb went off. That hmm. We could go sell some scarves. And we did. We launched scarves. Yeah, we we called it Fashionable. And uh, I don't even remember what year it would have been. I guess it would have been October of 2010. Mm -hmm. And we sold over 4,000 scarves in a couple of months and realized, wow, we have something here. People yeah. want to empower. They want to be right. a part of that story of empowerment. Right. Oh, and to have a piece to hold from Africa. I think right. all of our members that haven't had the chance to you know, fly over and visit our project partners or see the work on the ground, to have something that they can tangibly touch that is a reminder of the impact they're having is huge. It's huge. That's a good word. Yeah. It is nice to touch that. Yeah. I mean, it even smells. <laughs> <laughs> Truly. It has this like smell of a loom that's really artisanal and, and, and it's cool. Were the women um, also making scarves with the cards and the jewelry or is that a new skill set that we they had to taught? train them? It was a new skill set okay. for sure. Cool. I mean, I say we. We had to hire people to train them. Sure. Because hmm. it's a male-dominated industry in Ethiopia. Correct. So it was... Any good job is. In, anywhere in the world. Uh, you know, it's male-dominated first. And then then we work towards suffrage and equality. But, um, yeah, so we started training women. And within a couple of years, we had, you know, almost 30 women making scarves. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then uh, and then leather is a big industry there as well, and so then we went into leather because it's actually I think the, one of the top few exports coming out of Ethiopia is leather. Wow! And so that was just a real natural fit. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I mean, from that concept of scale, I never wanted to try to train them to do something that they'd never done before. Because I even heard that Eden, the brand that Bono's wife mm -hmm. started, they were making all these clothes in Kenya. But they were not the kind of clothes that were indigenous to that community. And because of that, they ended up having to outsource a lot of their production to China, hmm. which certainly wasn't on mission for them. And I just remember thinking, if Bono's wife, with all the resources they have, couldn't figure out how to train people to make something, right? then there's no way I'm stepping into that hmm. So stick territory. with what they know. Stick with what they know. So we started mm -hmm. making leather bags and totes and stuff like that, and those took off and... I remember, you know, Minka Kelly wore that bag and Kristen Bell put it in People magazine and Julianne Huff did a blog post on it because it was it was a unique idea to mm -hmm. have people in poverty making products to get them out of it, you know, mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. So. Can we back up for a minute? Boop, we talked boop, about boop. Boop, boop. we talked about you living in Ethiopia. So what happened in you internally or externally that moved your family over there. That's huge. My Big brave move. wife. Okay. 
Rachel um, got a job offer before we were getting married. I mean, we were engaged. Okay. And she got a job offer that said, do you want to run our adoption agency in Ethiopia? Huh. And that was obviously a huge decision, especially at the beginning of marriage. I mean, right. all of the advice we got, including our pastors, was no way, don't do it. And at the same time, we felt this really strong pull. I wouldn't say necessarily at that point to say no and go to Ethiopia, but we felt a strong pull to let's keep this, let's get advice, but remember that that's humans and let's really kind of set a Ebenezer or put a stake in the ground in our relationship that we're going to pray and it's going to be about us and God and really listening. And so everybody was coming at us, you know, telling us no, or then her agency said, we need a decision within the next two weeks, to which I emailed back and said, great, if you need a decision in the next two weeks, I encourage you to look for other people. And if you find someone within the next two weeks, I wish you, I wish them all the best. We're mm-hmm. not going to be able to make a decision in the next two weeks. Yeah, um, we're going to wait on the Lord for this. And so we did, and eventually, we really felt it was clear that we were supposed to move, and we weren't going to mm-hmm. do it without knowing that it was totally clear. Totally. I mean, there's no way I'm risking our marriage and moving to Ethiopia without feeling like we have something to fall back on and know that it was God's plan for yeah. us, right? Mm-hmm. So that that was it, Rachel. Rachel got a job offer, and I said, okay. Wow. Was there a moment for you where you felt like, oh, yeah, the Lord's saying, go? Or was it just time spent? I think it was just time spent yeah. in it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't remember a very specific thing, like a meteor falling out of the sky. Uh, but Sometimes I wish he would communicate like that, I right? know. It made it a lot easier. a clear answer. But I think it was just both of us got to a place where we were felt completely confident it was what we were supposed to do. That's awesome. How long were you gone? Was it just like 18 months? Yeah. I mean, we we went there for one stint for a year and Mm -hmm. had to come back. We didn't want to come back, but her job ran out. Mm -hmm. So that means our visas ran out. Um, We were loving it. Mm -hmm. We loved it there. Mm -hmm. And then we went back again for a few months the next summer to do some work as well as with Mocha Club as well as an adoption. So were you working on behalf of African Leadership and Mocha Club while Rachel was working at the adoption place? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I'd moved there for, for Mocha Club to – and that's how we came to Women at Risk and got it, got ABLE it, got and it. all that stuff. Yeah, you were managing all projects at that point. I mean, whatever that means. <laughs> that was you. That was your project. Project yeah, that, manager was your title, if I remember. Is that when true? When I joined, that was That's your hilarious. Title. Yeah. Because I remember sitting with you at? Panera. Panera. Yeah. And after a long conversation, go, you saying, I don't know what I want to do next. Uh-huh. I was like, oh, my gosh, hold on. <laughs> We're actually hiring for a job. At the, I remember thinking that was at the end of the conversation. That was at the very end of our conversation. Because I'm very slow. <laughs> what a visionary. <laughs> <laughs> There's someone sitting here <laughs> with a brilliant education that wants to help out. That's right. Funny. Well, we weren't. We'd had a long friendship before that point. It wasn't necessarily right. like all about Africa for us. No, not at all. So, yeah. Hmm. So you birth fashionable. You have this idea. It starts going really well. Do you remember the day we went to the lawyers? No. We went to the lawyer and he said, you're making too much money 
Oh, you're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's called UBIT or Unrelated mm-hmm. Business Income Tax. And it was a threat. It was so su- fashionable, was so successful. And yeah. we were bringing in so much income from it. And we walked out, and I remember you looking at me and saying, I don't want to run a for profit business. Yeah, do you, that's <laughs> funny said, you remember that. Well, somebody's going to need to. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I never thought that I would be back in that world. Right. I kind of just thought my world was right. to be a nonprofit for the rest of my life. Hmm. And, you know, I, I just feel like looking back, I guess God was grooming me mm-hmm. to get back into it, but with a very rooted mindset that money doesn't matter, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, although we're in this for-profit thing that can make a ton of money and is growing really well, I think at the end of the day, honestly, the reason we want to grow and make a lot of money is so that we can have impact. Mm-hmm. And and there's real no cognitive dissonance in our organization with no. that. I mean, everybody there is mission-focused, and uh, and everybody, you know, wants to be taken care of and have good health care and everybody's an owner in the company and they have full maternity leave and all those kind of things that matter to us. Those are things that we wanted to put in place first, not later. And so that we could take care of our employees because that's why we exist to take care of our employees, to help women create jobs around the world, women that are disenfranchised or in poverty. So, Hmm. you know, we want to make a ton of money, but it's because it puts us in a position to compete in an industry and force other people to follow. Because if we could become really profitable and successful, then that and, – and if we can make and changing the world where the right. money is, then all of a sudden a lot of companies will start following suit. We believe that we're on, on that trajectory. Right. We believe that the industry is on that trajectory, and we're just trying to ramp it up and speed it up a little bit. When you started this idea of fashionable and working with women and you – connected with women at risk, you didn't have any children. Mm-hmm. I have four I I daughters. Yeah, I do. Isn't that amazing. funny? Amazing. Yeah. Um, what kind of role or impact has li- being the only male in a very female ho- house, how has that kind of continued to churn and inspire and push you forward with this vision? Well, you know, I, I just feel like Again, I, I've never looked that far forward. I, I feel like I'm very reactive and very responsive. And the very first thing that I've ever done that's really been forward-looking is thinking as as a company, hold on, we're growing enough here to have enough influence that we could actually change the industry now. So that's about the first forward-looking thing I've ever done. I mean, mm-hmm. having four daughters and all these things are are just a straight-up blessing. I mean, you know... And working with 83 women out of 86 wasn't a strategy. I just think when you have a really strong mission and you have a mission that cares for women and you're running a fashion company, you just attract a lot of brilliant women. And the the people that came to the top every single time for the role were women. And, you know, especially when we started and we couldn't pay people very well, I just think the truth is guys – or like, you know, oh, I'd love to help, but you got to pay me, you know. Right. Mm. And women were willing to take the risk to say, okay, I'll defer that payment mm. if, number one, I can own a little bit of the company, which is smart. And then number mm-hmm. two, if I feel like I can do something with my life. I mean, right. I don't know. I'm, I'm pretty down on guys when it comes, you know. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think we got to have them, obviously. We do need them, yes. We need them. <laughs> we do. But the reality is... You know, Abel 
Able is a women-led company all the way. It's just mm -hmm. I just uh, I was just a guy with an idea that can do jazz hands. You can do them very well. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you changed the name from fashionable to able, and then you started reimagining what else able could do. It could move past leather and fashion. Uh, so, what are you pushing into now? What's your latest? Well. So that, so when it started thinking f forward, when we started mm -hmm. thinking forward, we were selling leather goods and scarves. The next evolution was, you know, there's people in our own backyard here in Nashville that need help too. And how could we help there? And so we looked around and at the end of the day started working with women that were coming out of um, the Hope Center, which mm -hmm. is an addiction center here in Nashville. Mm -hmm. And then started also working with women coming out of the Magdalene House oh, and yeah. um, that also work with Thistle Farms. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, both mission-driven and market-driven. I think we saw that, and I think that's the beauty of business as, as a mission is that you actually can do both at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me, it was seeing, you know, this Africa thing it was so hot when Bono was talking about it. But as far as creating jobs, that was starting to dwindle a little bit from a perspective of, hey, there's people domestically that need jobs too. And I don't think that those people are being impure either. It's not always just, you know, that image of somebody going, well, what about our backyard? Mm. You know, it's it's a genuine reality that there's the, that there's people all over the world. And so yeah. um, we have really ramped up manufacturing and production in Ethiopia, and my heart will always be there. And... In, in Nashville, we've gone from employing three women out of those circumstances to now over 28. And that's phenomenal. And mm -hmm. that's awesome to mm -hmm. see, right? They're the heartbeat of the company. I mean, uh, and with that said, that heartbeat is on an individual level. It's spending time with the people you seek to serve. And, it's, and, and, and I don't care how big Abel ever gets, uh, those huge numbers – don't at least for my life don't affect my heart in, in necessarily even a positive way. Um, it's too nebulous. But when you meet someone at the water cooler that says, "I just started last week," mm -hmm. thank you. Mm. That's like pfft, blubber, you know. Yeah. And being in an office with with people, and whether they've come out of those circumstances or not, I mean, a young lady just hired from University of Tennessee. When she found out she got a job, started weeping. And just because mm -hmm. people want to use their life for purpose. So right, right. that heartbeat in our office, I think, drives us to make these moves towards a much larger scale thing. Mm -hmm. And so your question mm -hmm. was, what's next? And to me, the what next is an evolution from working with women locally as well. And then next saying, if we want to compete with the fashion industry and we want to show them that you can pay people a living wage – then, then we got to compete. And so let's sell denim shoes and apparel too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like I know anything about denim shoes and apparel. But one of our investors was, said, well, I know a girl in New York City that works for Ralph Lauren that makes denim. And so I went and met Jenny and um, John Passavant. You can Google John. He's a former model. He has incredible abs. <laughs> um, check it out. It'll blow your mind. And Jenny started making denim for us, you know? And so, you know, it, it would be lovely to talk about these brilliant strategy moves and how we recruited people and all that, but it was always just stumbling over what mm -hmm. 
you know, one might believe that God laid out before them, you know? Totally. So we launched all those product categories really to compete in the industry. Hmm. Not because I care about denim. Yeah. Although they're pretty cute jackets. They they are very they're cute. Very I'm wearing a pair of Able jeans right now. Are you, you are? Like my favorite ones. They're high-waisted. They, they're oh, love a good high-waisted pair I know, right? That's <laughs> <laughs> I'm At what point did you start thinking about finding importance and making an impact in the fashion industry, talking about that living wage and publishing your wages? Because I know that's something y'all are stepping into of really wanting to be accountable for yourselves, but also encouraging the rest of the industry to like, hey, maybe do the same. Yeah. I felt like a few years back, if as we were getting big enough that I didn't have visibility to every single person we were working with, right? Then it started to feel like, I don't know that we're having the impact that we're saying we're having or or that we set out to have anymore. So we started looking at different audits that could look at Abel's manufacturing. And, you know, we found that they were sorely missing a couple of things that we really wanted to see, which is, number one, uh, how are women being handled in the workplace from an equality perspective, wages, benefits, safety, et cetera. And secondly, wages, wage transparency, Mm -hmm. because the biggest hit we can make on poverty is just everybody gets paid a living wage. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. not rocket science, right? Right. Um, But there's a lot of greed in the world. Um, In this format of this uh, podcast, we can even conclude possibly that it's a fallen world and that Mm -hmm. people will choose not to help someone before they would help themselves. Mm -hmm. And so... We just felt like wage transparency was going to be something that consumers needed really clear access to in order to drive demand for paying people well. Mm -hmm. And so if we can create a really cool marketing piece, like a nutritional label that's on every single product Mm -hmm. that people look at and go, hold on, that shirt's made by someone making a good wage and this one, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll get that one. You know, totally. and the reality is they can cost about the same if they're the same quality. Now, it's not going to be a $10 shirt from H&M that's going to fall apart. But, you know, even that whole movement of consumerism of 400% in the last 20 years, consumerism has grown. Mm-hmm. That needs to slow down a little bit. You know, that's not only a, a human impact from wages and, and and suppressing wages in order to be able to sell a $10 shirt, but it's also has an incredible environmental impact, not only mm-hmm. on the production side, but also on the disposal side mm-hmm. from consumers, right? right? So all of that can slow down a little bit if we can just get people's wages up a little bit to, and and, and the and, and statistics say that it's only about a one to 3% increase in the price of a product is all it would take in order to get everybody in the industry to living wage. So we're wow, not talking about massive crazy. hits. Mm-hmm. And then people say, well, why would people not pay that extra 1% to 3%? Well, that's what we were just talking about a second ago. Greed. Right, right, right. Greed, right. man. It's shareholder value, baby. Mm-hmm. Right. So we're trying to make the shareholder value in publishing your wages. Almost kind of like Tom's became popular for one for one, and then everybody started doing that. Right. If we can make publishing wages cool, right, right. then that will have an, as big as an impact on poverty as anything I believe we've seen in a 1,000 years. That's what I believe. I believe it with you. That's awesome. Because what we're doing is living in the world. We're saying, look, if we can make it profitable mm-hmm. and make make a company grow by publishing wages and paying people well, and we can make consumers demand that, then we're we're being honest about the world. We're not being Pollyanna or right. 
we're actually saying, no, we're counting on people, you know, mm-hmm. um, turning towards where it'll make more money. So it's not only got to be a genuine effort that is sincere in its missional objective, but it also has to be marketed really well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we're doing well at mm-hmm. ABLE. That's awesome. Is there ever going to be an ABLE for men? Not in my lifetime. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> the next generation may. Yeah. I mean, somebody may someday take over and lead it that direction. But I think the next product category would definitely be children. Oh, yeah. Because our consumer base is women. Sure. And women do most of the purchasing. And you don't have to totally shift 100% of your marketing and infrastructure. Like to, to do men would be a whole new business. Okay. Everywhere from the marketing to the leadership to the fits and design and styling. It's a totally different team. Yeah. So I'm not interested. I just <laughs> asked that because maybe like some wives or girlfriends, you know, buy clothing and products well, for their, when they their get, significance. When I they get maybe. pregnant. <laughs> We'll turn to them when they get pregnant. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> what are you going to do with kids? Do you have any ideas? No. I just, I'm the one that says, let's do that. Let's do kids first. <laughs> and then somebody else has the idea of what to actually make for kids. But no, this fall, I pushed out to Jordan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then her eyes got really big, of course, when I said, mm-hmm. hey, I want to see some kids stuff this holiday. Just to test it, you know. Let's, let's just create some kids stuff for yeah. babies. Let's you know, and it. little little kids too. You don't have fit issues. You don't have right. You, they don't necessarily care. Yeah, they don't need it to fit really nice or high waisted right. or anything like that. So, oh my gosh, please create high waisted jeans for babies. <laughs> please, <laughs> I'll look into that. That would be the cutest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be out there, isn't it? I don't know. That's super. I haven't funny. seen them yet. That would be hilarious. If you create them, you have to call them the Fallons because okay. on this podcast. This is, where, this is where I ideas happen. Them. Yeah. <laughs> oh I will always point to this podcast, <laughs> this moment in time. Uh, I love it. How often do you travel over to Africa now? Do you? I don't. Not with the fam? No. At the beginning of Abel, I traveled probably three to four times a year for about three to four years. And eventually, once we started having kids, it was just too much. Mm-hmm. I came back from one trip and got really sick and... Because I would go for three days. Right. So I'd fly for a day, stay up all day, you know, you know that flight to Ethiopia, then come back one night, not sleep all the way back. So my immunity system was crushed. And right. Not because of being in Africa, but just no sleep. And and so I thankfully around that time had a big enough organization that we could send people over to do the job. And I miss it and I want to go back, but I don't want to go back without my family. Yeah. The next trips will be with my fam, which will hopefully be summer of 2020, which is also obviously not a cheap trip right. with six people. Right. <laughs> That's cool. That'll be a fun trip. What's the one thing you would want your legacy to speak to? Oh, I, know, I don't have a, a legacy. forward question. We well, all you have do. a legacy. We all are leaving some impact on the world, whether positive or negative, and I, I hope my daughters grow up and have extraordinary self-esteem. Mm. That's what I want. I want them to be able to sit in a room and know they're loved and valued and and that they can look at friends and they could look at a potential spouse and know just how worthy they are. 
That's, hmm. I mean, that's all I really, if you really ask me all I really care about, that's it. And then also, I'd love to have Abel do some cool stuff, too. <laughs> Side note. Good. Side note. <laughs> well, you are doing cool stuff with Abel. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for meeting with us. Thanks for having me. We miss you. Thanks for the coffee. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Mocha on us. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. All right, friends. Thank you for tuning into this conversation. As always, please follow us on Instagram. Mocha Club is at Mocha Club and African Leadership is at African Leadership. And if you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple iTunes and leaving us a rate and review, those are actually really helpful to get the word out about this podcast. Um, So if you wouldn't mind doing that, we would be super grateful. Y'all have a great Tuesday. Tuesday.